Hello and welcome to Life Sciences in Queensland. Joining us today is distinguished molecular virologist Professor Paul Young, who heads the University of Queensland School of Chemistry and Molecular Biosciences, including the team working on a potential vaccine for COVID-19. Having gained his Bachelor of Science with honours at UQ and his PhD at the University of London, Professor Young has since built a career as a successful researcher, educator and administrator. He's also involved in research that concentrates on several infectious viruses, including the dengue virus, a serious mosquito-borne disease affecting many tropical countries, and the West Nile virus. Professor Paul Young, welcome. Thanks, Anthony. Great to be here. Like so many people, I can remember first hearing the news that Queensland was working on a potential COVID-19 vaccine, and I remember saying to myself, this is wonderful news for Queensland and, of course, the world, and the world was indeed watching. What's it been like for you and the team? It's been quite a journey, I have to say. That journey started quite some time ago when we first came up with uh, the approach that uh, ultimately became the platform technology that we took forward to to um, deal with COVID-19. That was back in 2011. And uh, like a lot of fundamental discovery science, it was uh, research done on a shoestring, often with some consultancy funds, uh, very little uh, external uh, grant support. But it was a good idea and we wanted to progress it. And over the years, we we'd really showed that it uh, worked with a number of different uh, viral targets. So when CEPI came into being, the Coalition for Epidemic Preparedness Innovations, quite a mouthful, mm-hmm. uh, in 2017, we were perfectly placed to provide a platform technology that they were looking for, which was something that could, de- uh, could be uh, positioned in place very quickly um, should a new pandemic emerge. And uh, we, were, we were provided uh, significant funding at that point in time to develop, our, develop that platform technology. And of course, as we all know, halfway through that grant, COVID emerged. And, you know, we didn't quite have all the toolbox sorted out that we had planned to have. So we took what we had at the beginning of 2020 and, and drove forward, not so much with a research program anymore, but uh, an idea that we were going to translate into a, um, a vaccine that was going to go through clinical trials and hopefully uh, through to deployment. So it was a, a very strange and exciting time for the uh, laboratory because uh, a research laboratory moving into that sort of uh, focus, both local and global focus was uh, somewhat challenging. And the world was indeed watching. Were you watching what the world was doing, what the rest of the world was doing? Yeah, it's been an unusual time. The uh, we, We've certainly been watching what the world is doing and, and it's all being done completely out in the open. That's probably been the most amazing thing. It, not only uh, academia, uh, small biotechs, but also the big farmers have been conducting all of their work over the last year very much in the public gaze. And we were there in amongst it. We were one of the first three in January of uh, 2020 to be asked by CEPI to to go down that path of developing a vaccine. So the spotlight definitely did fall on us at that stage. How has your team overcome the setback it experienced last year when it was discovered during the phase one trial of the vaccine that it generated those antibodies? 
Yeah, mixed mixed feelings about mm. that. I think uh, I used the word in the in the press conference we had on the day we uh, announced that halt uh, halt to progression to phase two, phase three clinical trials. Actually, the vaccine turned out to be safe and well tolerated. So, in fact, the phase one is continuing. So, we didn't actually halt that particular clinical trial. That was always meant to go for twelve months. So, we'll still be taking in data from that. So, devastated at that immediate time point. But the reality is, all research science is like this, and you know, it was surprising how quickly everyone just picked up turned around moved on we have a strategy for changing the way we're clamping our, our technology is called the molecular clamp so we're changing the clamp that generated that diagnostic interference problem uh, we've already chosen a number of lead candidates and we're progressing quite quickly so I guess you know it's one of those learning experiences I, I always like the quote from Isaac Asimov who once said for a scientist you know there are very few eureka moments it's more the <laughs> Oh, that's interesting. Mm. There are a number of COVID vaccines on the market today, as we know. Is there room for more? Yes, I think there is room for more, and there always were. I I remember when we started uh, the process back in the early part of 2020, the question I got asked most was, you know, what was it like being in a race to develop the the first vaccine or or the vaccine? And my answer was always, well, we're not in a race with uh, other vaccine developers. We're in a race against the virus, and the more vaccine uh, vaccines we have out there to deploy, the better. This is a a virus that had is a true pandemic. It's it's uh, affecting the global population. We need massive numbers of uh, vaccine doses. And as is seen around the world at the moment, we have a supply problem. So the more vaccines uh, that are available, the better. The second thing to, to remember, and I'm sure many of, many of the listeners here know well about this because it's been in the uh, media and the press uh, quite frequently, and that's uh, the issue of variants that are arising. There will come a point in time when those variants are changing so much that the vaccines against the original virus that emerged out of Wuhan will not be able to uh, to work against them. What will happen then? So what we're doing at the moment, which and, and others are doing as well, we're, we're developing, it's a bit like the influenza vaccine, which has to be changed every year. Uh, we're developing what CEPI are now calling wave two, which are the uh, second generation of vaccines. We're taking learnings from the first round in terms of the quality of the vaccines and how they're produced, but also we're now targeting some of these new variants. And this is the work that you continue to do now? Correct. At the University of Queensland? Correct. Yes, yeah, so I, I have to say it. At that pivotal moment in, in, in December of last year when um, phase two, three trials were not going to progress, we certainly had the view that we'd continue developing the clamp technology you know, with alternative clamps to, to the HIV components. Uh, but we were looking at other, other viral targets. But CEPI have asked us to stay focused on COVID and particularly the variants, and we've taken that, uh, taken that call on and moving forward. Is COVID likely to be with us for many years? Uh, the crystal ball question. Mm. The general consensus now, I, if you'd asked me that question a few months ago, there was the possibility perhaps of eradication. I think the way we're seeing the virus adapt to its uh, new host, I think we'll probably see it as an endemic member of our viral uh, flora uh, for quite some time. But we will have, a, as, as you know, a plethora of vaccines to, uh, to control it. So we'll need to be injected, I guess, like the flu on an annual basis, perhaps? I, I suspect we'll have to have repeated vaccinations as the uh, virus uh, can changes. It may not change as much mm. if we suppress the level of global spread of the virus, and I suspect probably not every year. This is a virus that doesn't mutate as much as influenza, so it could be a, a vaccine that needs to be administered, changed and administered maybe every few years. Could a COVID vaccine and a flu vaccine become one? 
Ah, we're all thinking about that. Yeah. So the possibility of co-delivery of uh, a flu and a coronavirus vaccine in the one in one vaccine, absolutely. Would make it easier, wouldn't it? It certainly would. <laughs> Paul, you completed your own PhD at the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine and began teaching at the UK University in 1986, returning to Australia three years later. What did your time in England do for your early professional aspirations? It was an amazing experience. I mean, I left when I was 22. So uh, my wife and I moved over to the UK. We knew no one there. So it was a completely new experience. And it's still true, but possibly even more so uh, back in the uh, 60s and 70s, that the wanderlust of Australians and travelling was very much within us all. And uh, it was part of the the, uh, norm to to, uh, go overseas and experience. Uh, My plan was to do a PhD and three years and come back I stayed there 11 years so that probably goes some way to say that we enjoyed the experience my Mm. two children were born in London it was it was pivotal for me as as you've mentioned I did my PhD and then subsequently became a lecturer at the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine I targeted that institution because I had an innate interest in in a career uh, that would would lead to solutions to disease uh, implications in the developing world. If you ask any scientist, um, you know, there's two main reasons why we do what we do. It's the excitement of discovery. There's no better thrill. But quite frankly, most of us enter into this profession to make a difference. And for me, that I, I had some early experiences of that. And, uh, and so I had a desire to, to impact in that developing world scenario. And the time at the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine, where there were a lot of collaborative studies uh, with colleagues in Africa and South America, just proved that to me. And that's where I developed my dengue program as well. I initiated that in London in the 1980s, and uh, we've uh, progressed with that uh, research study ever since. And how's that, how's that going today? Uh, we've had some really big hits. We, we had a major publication recently that uh, identified uh, some antibodies we had developed against uh, a particular protein of this virus, which we then showed cross-reacted with a number of other flaviviruses. There are quite a few human pathogens that are flaviviruses like yellow fever, West Nile virus, in addition to dengue and Japanese encephalitis. And we showed that uh, this antibody actually targeted a protein that was common uh, between all of those, and we showed protection in a uh, in an animal model against disease uh, for a wide range of these flaviviruses. So that that's quite unusual. So um, as a therapeutic, that's a pos- that's a possible pathway, but it also identifies that protein as a target for a vaccine strategy, and and we're pursuing those as well. Along the way, we um, serendipitously I mean, again I can't can't go through this uh, talk without expounding the the virtues of discovery science enough because out of discovery uh, comes translational capacity you can't translate what you don't discover so discovery science is absolutely critical for to to remain a a core uh, undertaking of R&D in this country and what came out of some research laboratory studies was an observation that well maybe one of these proteins uh, might be circulating in in the blood and could be an interesting diagnostic marker what that led to was us commercializing a um, a diagnostic assay for dengue and the foundation of that is now used around the world and is probably one of the um, single most important diagnostic assays for early detection of dengue. Paul, shortly after returning to Australia, you began teaching and researching at the University of Queensland. What were your aims back when you were appointed as a, as a senior lecturer? Uh, my aims were, I, I guess, fairly simplistic. As a young young researcher, I wanted to embark on my own uh, uh, research agenda. Um, I had started that process in, in the London School, and the idea was to, to build a group 
the way science works in this country is uh, the university tends to employ a, a single group leader or an academic and it's up to you then to get the funding to employ the people that work in your laboratory so it's almost like a little cottage industry <laughs> and, uh, and and the idea was to build a, a group of individuals of, with like minds um, driving forward a research agenda that, that, that again could make a difference and to complement that with uh, a teaching uh, regime. I've always loved teaching. I had a great opportunity in the London School to uh, be involved in uh, postgraduate uh, coursework training and we, we taught a number of uh, master's uh, programs uh, at the London School and I, I ran the virology program for some time. And just that engagement with uh, students was always a buzz for me and uh, has, has remained ever since. So I graduated from that prime desire of, of pushing forward my own research agenda and, and bringing along others with me to later stage in my career where I, I see it as my role to nurture those individuals, facilitate their ability to go forward with their own ideas now. Since then, you've won numerous awards uh, and regularly been part of uh, successful bids for large grants. How have some of these grants advanced the important work that you've been able to do? Yeah, I think, I mean, I've already mentioned one. Uh, if it hadn't been for the NHMRC long-term support of our dengue program, you know, the diagnostic assay for dengue wouldn't have come along, nor would uh, the re- recognition of those um, therapeutic options for disease treatment. I guess the, the big one was uh, when the Coalition for Epidemic Preparedness Innovations trusted us with, us with a $15 million uh, grant over three years to really uh, develop the platform technology. That was a formative change for me. I, I think up until that point in time, like many scientists, it your research, whilst collaboration becomes is always a part of that research, it's very much focused in your own group. Uh, with the large CEPI funding, what we developed was a pipeline of activities right across Australia that was uh, putting in place this preparedness pipeline for an emerging outbreak, which of course subsequently happened. You know, we spent a year putting that together and it just came together so well in 2020. So colleagues at the Australian National University, colleagues in the University of Melbourne, uh, colleagues at CSIRO, a multitude of small biotechs that contributed as well. And then ultimately our relationship with uh, CSL in, in pushing forward to manufacture. So those those large-scale funding opportunities allow you to do things. Paul, you're also an investigator at the Australian Infectious Disease Research Centre. What does that role entail? Yeah, so um, the AID um, at the University of Queensland, the director is Mark Walker, Professor Mark Walker, and the idea there is to bring together a quite remarkable infectious disease community around southeast Queensland in particular. Uh, researchers from the Queensland Institute of Medical Research, Berghofer, uh, and other universities, as well as our clinical colleagues. And the AID is actually a network of over 110 different research groups. And that just gives you a, an idea of the breadth and depth of um, infectious disease research here in, here in Queensland. The upshot of that, and, and certainly uh, with the impetus of, of COVID over this last year and the recognition that infectious disease is actually a serious problem that we need to address, we are starting to get together more closely and, and we're starting to build a network. I mean, we've thrown around some different titles, a Queensland Biomedical Hub or there's a, the Route 66, the bus route is the, <laughs> co- is the corridor. Also with our colleagues at, the, at JCU in, in Cairns. It's really important for us to build on the unbelievable discovery strength we have in this um, in this state and put together a, 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 a larger collective that synergistically can really deliver not only on a national but global scale. You talk about those um, discoveries. In more recent times, why? Or are we just 
simply hearing about these discoveries more so today? I think you're just hearing about them more so yeah. these days. The reality is um, the sums have been done, the analyses are in. For every dollar invested in science in general, it's something like 4 to $5 return, um, whether that's in you know improved healthcare or whether it's in uh, commercial outcomes. So discovery science has been feeding that particular pipeline for a long time. Uh, in Australia, we're, we're not as good as some other countries some other OECD countries in bridging the gap between that discovery science and true translational into outcomes, better health outcomes or even commercial outcomes. And that's one of the desires we have at the moment to actually build that, to to put the bridge in, to to, to bridge the gap between uh, that discovery and translation. Paul, you also have your finger on the pulse of uh, microbiology developments in this state. What's on the horizon? There's such an exciting um, array of uh, activities happening, you know, from, from again, the basic uh, and discovery science through to some small biotechs that are really pushing the envelope. I mean, you've got a diagnostic company like Alum having a huge impact in um, diagnosis for COVID uh, uh, in the US at the mm. moment. You have uh, vaccine companies like Vaxis who are developing new patch technologies that will take, take the needle out of the equation. Some of the data from them are unbelievably exciting. The company Microba uh, are looking at the microbiome of, uh, of the human gut and the more individuals they look at, the more they are drawing analogies and, and um, associations between particular disease outcomes. So the underlying microbiology uh, research that is uh, without parallel, I think, in this country here in, here in South East Queensland, not just at the University of Queensland, but other universities and CSIRO divisions and JCU, put that all together, it is actually driving a lot of this subsequent translational endeavour. Behind every great leader is a great team. What's been the team's greatest success so far? Yeah, I'd, I'd, I'd like to rephrase that too. I, I stand beside my team, not, yeah. not ahead of the team. So, uh, uh, and, and as I said, I think I've reached that point where I facilitate their excellence. And, and I just, I'm so proud of the team and what they achieved this last year but beyond that as well uh, where next we're, we're heading we're heading into um, probably a, the exciting phase of really proving the underlying technology for our vaccine I mean one of the great outcomes even though the vaccine was halted from going to phase two three in December what did come out of the phase one clinical trial was just how good it was CEPI uh, have made made the comment themselves it's why they've continued to fund us they made the comment themselves it's it's some of the best data they've seen out of any of the phase one clinical trials um, if it hadn't been for that diagnostic interference there would have been no doubt that it would have gone further so it's it's a matter of building on that particular strength well Paul thank you so much for spending time today to share a little of the exciting developments in microbiology research being achieved right here in Queensland. Thanks very much.